The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. My guest today, I've been wanting to do this podcast for uh, a long time um, and honestly at various times I've been sort of like, oh, I'm, I'm not ready, I'm not ready. Um, I don't even know if I was but uh, these are two absolute heroes of, of mine and, and, and icons of journalism. Uh, I'm talking about Annabelle Lee Mather and Mihinarangi Forbes, uh, who, you know, are they're they're a duo who have worked together for, I think, at least 15 years now um, across multiple different shows and projects. You know that you often see this in broadcast journalism, where there is a, a producer and presenter who who sort of stick together you know, throughout different eras of a show or even different projects, but few achieve the longevity or, or the kind of breadth of output. And uh, that that uh, Annabelle and Mahi um, have. Okay. But, but you know, like that that is only kind of a part of the reason I wanted to speak to them. It's also because if you ever get the privilege of, of uh, talking with these wahine, it's it's just a really, really good time. They're very funny. They're very smart. They're very fearless. And I think all of that comes across uh, in, in this conversation. Um, you know, a lot of people listening will already know who they are, but um, basically both of them were journalists. Annabelle, um, sort of foundational at Fakata Māori, Māori Television, and um, he coming in through, uh, you know, through being a long-time part of the, um, the sort of three News Campbell Live team. But they, they sort of came together at the around the start of that golden era at, at Whakata Māori that, um, you know, we discussed with uh, Dr. Jim Mather uh, on the fold a few weeks ago, and they really drilled sort of further into that. What, what a sort of a magical... Um, you know, lightning in a bottle time that was when TV audiences were still huge and, you know, there was this this huge energy and passion for the, the opportunity that that uh, channel represented and still does, but that fundamentally, you know, the world has changed, audience behaviour has changed and, and there was just a real sweet spot before the internet started to really um decay audiences and, and fragment them that they got to work through. But, uh, you know, the, there is a sort of a subtext I was thinking about 
as we spoke, that, that is they were sort of always swimming upstream, you know, so they started as kind of correspondence on, on network side shows, then ultimately after, uh, you know, a pretty, you know, a pretty hard, pretty traumatic um, uncoupling with the network over the Kohangareo stories, um, they went and started the Hui, which uh, was an independent production that that sold into three, is still going a fantastic Māori Karen Sophia show, and then ultimately went upstream again to start the Aotearoa Media Collective, uh, which which is its own independent production company, but it's which which makes shows for for RNZ and, and others, but it's also more than that, you know, like they've done really beautiful and important work in the education uh, space, which, you know, as Mahi said, is, is really difficult, but also as, you know, feels incredibly uh, important and, and purposeful. And, uh, you know, so they've, they've been around a long time, but it also when you speak to them, there's still so much passion and, and a kind of a youthful energy about them that I – I kind of feel like they're just getting started in some some way, um, but look, this is a, a conversation that, that covers the breadth of their careers. Uh, naturally, talks about some of the people that made that happen, but also the the way that their experiences within various institutions at, um, along the way, you know, have have kind of told the story of how uh, you know a kind of a Māori approach to journalism and current affairs has gone from being something that has is really difficult, and I think it still is in a lot of ways. But is is just that has has dynamically changed within you know, large parts of our media, and I think a lot of that change um, has been driven by the likes of Annabelle and Mahi and and others from their generation who just did a lot of very hard, staunch, um, important work to, to make it happen. So, yeah, really, really thrilled to, to have uh, the pair of them on this episode of The Fold. And thank you so much for coming on my humble, my humble little podcast, The Fold, this morning. Very excited to be here. Very excited. It's very humble podcast, but... What a grand building you're in! It is. It is incredible. It is. It's. It's a bit too bouge, but we we tried to find something appropriate for us, but we 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 failed, and so here we are <laughs> struggling it's to pay rent. It's the former council chambers, is it? That's correct. Yeah, yeah the Mount Albert City Council, right through, wow. right right behind you. That's, it's beautiful. Thank you. I mm. appreciate that. I, um, love, I love the history. Me also. Um, so one thing that that struck me when I was prepping for this was that I was I. Trying to think of, it's a little bit name a more iconic duo, but but like a, a a duo who have worked together for for as long and as consistently as the pair of you, and um, I wanted to to start where where that started. Like, how, how did the Bells and Mahi show begin? Well, we have names for ourselves. We are sometimes the Kathy Kim. <laughs> Other times we're um, um, Eddie other? Eddie and. Pat, oh, Patsy, Patsy. And yeah. when we're on the road with Thelma and Louise, yeah. <laughs> we just morph, morph into these different characters. It's lots of fun. But, yeah, we met 
we obviously knew of each other, as you do when you're journalists, like, oh, that's Annabelle, and um, that's Duncan before I met Duncan, and he works over there and he does some stuff over there, that kind of stuff. So I was at um, TV3, I was at TV3 for a long time, and probably for that period of time in my uh, 30s, yeah, would have just been mostly my late 20s and 30s, and Bells was at Ruiamai and then at Māori Television. So, And I was doing Māori kind of content, if you like, through Campbell Live All News. So we just bumped into each other on different um, kaupapa around the motu or didn't bump into each other but then listened to each other's stories or watched them for research and those kind of things. But we actually have a bit of a story when we first met him. Yeah, I knew who Mahi was. And I've told this story lots of times, but basically I was very resentful towards <laughs> Mahi because she keeps scooping me. I keep thinking that I had stories like all lined up that I was going to break and then Mahi would like swoop in and kick my ass. And that's I was like, that damn Mahi. That's Forbes. annoying. Yeah, but do you know, I had the um, weight of a massive platform and that's truly what it was about. And then um, one day I heard she was in Auckland and me and her were having this East Coast, hadn't West Coast there? beef. No, you hadn't oh. moved up yet. And it was time to like throw down and just have a massive dance off. So I rang her and said, I was hey. actually terrified. I was like, fuck, what does she want? <laughs> oh, so you reached out to her. No, she didn't reach out. She demanded that I, after I finished, I come outside and hop in her big car and go and sort some stuff out. Really? Yeah. yeah. And I was like, ooh. And we went to the pub, <laughs> which also had a TAB attached to it in Newmarket. It was right yeah. across the road from Māori Television. Was Larry Parr there? Larry Parr turned up for yeah, one part of it. Weird. Yeah, yeah. yeah and we had a little cordial with him. But basically that's how our friendship started. Mm. And then later Mihi moved to Auckland. She was still at Campbell Live, but her tamariki started in the same school as mine at Newton Central. And then eventually Mihi came over to... Māori television and that's when we yeah. really started to be able to work together. And I felt like um, really loyal to Campbell Live. It was such a very loyal team. But when Carol Hirschfeld announced she was off to Māori TV, I was like, what the actual? No, that was my move. <laughs> and she was like, I'm off to Māori television, everyone. I was like, I can't fucking believe this. <laughs> and I was very quickly off to Māori television after that. I was like, yeah. So, so to, I actually I asked uh, uh, Jim about this a, a few weeks ago, but I feel like that that era of Māori television, and because it was during a period when television was still this kind of unimpeachable mm. God mode information system, and you know you had these kind of you know people coming in from uh, you know like yourselves and, and 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 Carol like what what was the the sort of atmosphere like and obviously the way it ended we'll we'll get to but let's let's not let's let's uh talk about the good times first i think Māori television just happened in this perfect bubble like we caught the last of the golden period of television before the advent of like streaming and online and all of that stuff we had been absolutely shitbagged to death by like Rodney Hyde and many others before we got on air. So there was really low expectation about what we could do. We could only go up from there. And um, we ended up sort of having this um, 
drive that we were the little station that could, that we were going to take on the big guys, that we were going to punch above our weight and be the a world-class Indigenous broadcaster and we were going to unite with other Indigenous broadcasters to uplift our people. So there was this really strong, united sense of what it was that we were trying to achieve. And so that built a really tight mm-hmm. culture within our organisation and a, and a belief that, you know, we were here to serve our people and mm-hmm. that's something that speaks to all Māori so I think that it was because of that mentality that we were able to create the amazing programming and co-papa that mm. we did. I think because um, I worked at eighteen in the nineteen ninety sixth was it for lasted for about ten months or something, and so that was quite traumatic. Uh, we all lost our jobs, and what was ATN? Television, Television network. network. It was, was the, the pilot for the a Maori pro, for a Maori um, channel. So we wow. were set up in Parnell, and you know, to Kuroirangi Morgan and Morihu McDonald, uh, Robert Pofari, Tawini and Puhi. They were directors, and it was completely underfunded. Um, and it was, and every day was an absolute struggle, and people just ran out of wind, really, because you're doing five jobs, like literally five jobs. You know, I think I was the head of children's programming, the news reporter, um, did some current affairs at the same time. Honestly, it was just, was all over the show. But it's just because there was no money. And then, you know, setting up all your editing and all that kind of stuff. So that was really turned me off, um, the government's promise of, you know, supporting a Māori television network. But I remember when Māori TV started and I think... I was probably still home with Tiahi Pauriwa, my second, and um, I was just so, so proud, and it just looks so, so different from 18. <laughs> I was like, oh, hang on, this one looks good. <laughs> and then, um, you know, then I think Māori television at the beginning uh, was everything. I think we probably started to talk about telling stories through a Māori lens, at that stage because that's when we truly were able to tell them because people like me and Carmen and, you know, um, Shannon and Scott and Campbell and that, we were working and trying to tell stories through a Māori lens but it was virtually impossible because our environment was so not Māori and just incapable of understanding where we were coming from. So there were blocks all the way through up to the editors, you know, it was every day was like going to war. <laughs> so, yeah, Māori television... Um, you know, it was everything that you wanted to be. And like I said, I wanted to go earlier. And actually, I didn't know Jim Mather until way later, but every time I saw him, he said, hey, when are you coming over? <laughs> and I'd be like, wow, this guy keeps asking me to come to Māori television. He doesn't even know me. And he, and so, you know, there were he was just really good at handpicking really good Māori throughout the industry and smiling at the other bosses and shaking their hand and, like, stealing their people through the back door. Um, so when I first came to Māori Television, it was honestly, it was everything. It was everything you could ever want. It's everything you could ever have imagined it was. And the environment was like home. The, I remember when um, Carol's porphyry happened at Māori Television and Mark Jennings got up and he talked about how when Māori Television was established three were excited because they thought, cool, here's a great training ground 
for, for all of these Māori journalists that we're going to be able to come through and pick off. And, and he's like, but that didn't happen. And he's right, like, it was a one-way door. Like, people, like, big people, you know, high-profile, experienced, amazing people were coming into Māori television, but it was literally about 10 years before anyone went from Māori television over mm. to mainstream because... You know, it was just such a fulfilling, inspiring, amazing place to work. It was safe. Mm. So the reason they don't go the other way is because it's unsafe and those environments are unsafe. So Māori television was a place where you could train, where you could make mistakes, but you would you would never make a mistake out there only in the office because you had so much cultural knowledge and support wrapped around you and then some really great journalists as well who had trained, you know, in RNZ and all that, like the Wiener Haraweras and... That you know that that were the staples in there. It was yeah, just it was the perfect um, environment. I guess mm. it was the dream. I mean, it sounds like this this kind of ideal. Um, one thing that that you know, and, and obviously, it also like like most perfect situations that they, they end. What, one thing that I'm curious about because it seems to speak to to that ending is. I feel like politicians always have a strange relationship with the media and particularly with sort of media that they can have an, at least a funding influence over in some respects that they have this idealised mm. vision of it in their mind and they're kind of, they almost like they close their eyes, they can imagine like their their great policies being yeah. applauded and then <laughs> but, suddenly it's like, hang on. What, what but also I? banking on the fact that Māori didn't understand governance. So the governance structure of Māori television used to be the Electoral College or something like that, eh, where... Um, I think it was Bill English. What, what was he? The, was it State Services? Hey, um, Bill English was the stakeholding yeah. minister. So they could um, elect some representation on the board and then, you know, it was a whole whole lot of other myriad of um, representation on the other side. And I think they thought that those people were going to work for them and act for them and eventually, probably, possibly the, the government side did, but eventually the other side kind of got smarter, you know, started to actually represent the people that they were there for. So, I mean, we, we've, you, you've talked at length and about the uh, Kohana Reo saga and, and um, I don't want to sort of uh, relitigate that, but I do want to kind of, um, for you to talk about what, you know, g given just how idyllic it, it was for, for quite some time there, what a trauma it must have been to the pair of you to, to kind of go through that and sort of, yeah, how you process that and then ultimately picked yourselves up and, and poured, poured yourselves into something new in the hui? Hmm. Probably less for me because I wasn't a day one like Annabelle. Um, so, you know, she's Māori TV was her baby kind of thing. Um, and I felt very privileged to have come along and... <clears throat> You know, I actually came to produce Takaya, the news, and then Julian left and then there was no one to fill his place and it was me. I always say that I'm just kind of um, a current affairs presenter that just kind of stumbled. You know, it was never something I wanted to do. It was just something that there was no one else to do. So, um, yeah, it was such an incredible team and the opportunity to do them. I remember doing some of, I can't name the people, but... Um, you know, like really top Māori public servants and them 
you know, doing the old, oh, I don't need any research, no, nah, I don't need any comms, this will be easy. <laughs> and then, you know, just with the kind of research we had prepared, absolutely flooring people in interviews. And because it was live, you know, you could see their eyes and thinking, oh, wow, this is kind of just like the other guys now. I'm going to be challenged and I'm terrified and I need to be more prepared next time. So we, I think we as a team, eh, we just became so much stronger in terms of our journalism together and more confident um, and felt um, we gave probably each other the confidence to ask the tough questions or take on the hard stories. But we did know, like some of our politicians, I think, had they had some more experience as being politicians, they would have expected that, but some were feeling new and the way that they reacted was uh, was interesting, yeah. I think even our politicians have come a long way now in terms of the way that they respond to some of the stories. Um, but, yeah, for me, um, it was really just disappointment because... The whole management had changed at Māori Television and changed for the worst. Um, you know, we had like a leader um, who operated as an individual and very close to um, the governance side of the organisation and less, you know, holding hands with us. And in fact, sometimes I felt like he was um, my enemy. Yeah, and so I kind of knew that that was all going to come. And then so then the hires that came afterwards, you kind of expected, you know, you could see where it was going. I was like, oh, yeah, this is not going to turn out well for me or for us um, because there was a real push to stop the kind of journalism that we're doing. Yeah, a real interference. It was interference. Hmm. I think it's not overstating it to say that it became a very hostile environment and it was basically over the course of a year, like Jim left as CEO, um, there was a whole lot of drama around the recruitment of the new CEO and you might recall that this once a preferred candidate became obvious that the staff signed a petition um, trying to encourage the board not to go through with that hire for various reasons and then it all got put on hold and then it started up again and that candidate ended up coming through. and then So we kind of could see over the course of about a year that the writing was was on the wall in terms of where governance stood, where our, leaders, where our leadership stood. Um, our, the person who became CEO gave a number of interviews publicly criticising our journalism and stuff. So there was an air of inevitability, but I was in denial about it for a long time. I was like holding on to hope that it wouldn't be so and that mm. maybe this was just a rough period and we'd all get through. But um, but that didn't happen. So it was, you know, it was a really difficult thing to leave and I went through a big grieving period and all of that. But it actually ended up being, I think, a real a blessing because it, yeah. it pushed us into a new space. Well, it forced us yeah. to, you know, put on our big girl pants and get on with it. And sometimes, you know, and I think about this when I think about um, people who've worked at TVNZ or something for like 25 years, and I'm thinking, ah, oh, that's so interesting because would I have worked at, 25, at TVNZ for 25 years had I not been pushed out or because I've actually been made redundant three times. Um, 
in my career. So um, I was thinking, would I have stayed if I had like a cushy job? And I was kind of, yeah, maybe I would have, but I'm so glad I haven't been because there's just so much to learn from being forced out. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty terrible. <laughs> um, um, yeah, it's a big spiritual awakening and, um, you know, like it actually affects you physically as well. Like you actually feel physically sick when that kind of stuff happens to you. And um, your whole family feels like that. And sometimes I've actually got people in my family <laughs> who are still angry <laughs> and who still won't give stuff up or won't talk to people. I'm kind of okay with it. I'm not okay with a couple of people because I kind of I've, and I've, I've really worked through this. And I thought, do I have to be zen and, you know, all those things that people say, you know, let it go, give it up. And I think, and then someone said to me, actually, you don't. You don't have to think about them or do anything. You just don't have to because, you know, what people did to you, like specifically to us too, was so wrong. <laughs> yeah. So so you go and so like what was the, the timeline? Did, did the, the, the so, hui start immediately or was no. there? No. So, um, oh, and this is the problem for, you know, Maori women or people of minority or whatever, um, is that the phone doesn't ring. Mm. <laughs> you know, like, you quit and then you th think... There'll be a Someone's going to be like, hey, I've got a great idea. Come and make current affairs over here. We're going to give you your own show. I mean, you think... Or, or just a job. Yeah. No. Or but, just a job, I mean, like, we're, we're do doing, you want to come and do some... It seems like... You'd feel, you feel like you'd proven yeah. yourself... And you were kind of in your prime. You still had like decades of good journalism to go. Um, you were well recognised. You'd won some international award as well, you know. We'd done all that. But, yeah, it's it, at that stage um, the mainstream platforms just were too nervous, I'd say. So I went to RNZ to get some money to live and I thought it'd be a good idea to learn a little bit while learn while you're out there on radio um, and Bells kind of did some contracting work at Great Southern but we had already decided that we were going to put something together for a we thought no the world's ready for a Māori current affairs show if it can't be at Māori television then it's got to be somewhere else and we're going to work all of our contacts to um, make it happen and then we um but we couldn't make it happen just with two Māori women who had never had run a business before, you know, because that's just not going to get funded. <laughs> was that a decision you made or was that sort of conveyed to you oh, somehow? It kind of felt like it was conveyed to us, eh? Oh, well, for, for me personally, like, I, I had no experience of the independent production sector, so I just didn't know how anything worked. I had no idea how to get anything over the line. So we, we knew that we needed some... But we were we told, knew we needed we some told as well that we us. needed to, you know, find yeah. somebody to kind of sit alongside us. The thing is, me and Mahi have been quite lucky that we have had this sort of quiet fairy godmother in the background of our career, which is um, the wonderful Annie Murray, who... Um, who she was the one that suggested when Julian left Native Affairs, hey, why don't you get Mahi Ngārangi to present? And we were like, oh, my God, what a genius idea. <laughs> the answer was right in front of us. And then when I left Fakata Māori and was very pregnant and very unemployed and very unemployable, um, Annie... 
had been doing some work with Great Southern Television. She was a commissioner at Prime mm-hmm. then, and she suggested that um, I do some work, some Māori consultancy work with them, and that's how our relationship developed with, with Great Southern. With Phil Smith. With Phil Smith. And as Mahi had said, we knew that our, you know, at, at the time, part of the grief was we felt like, well, I felt like my career in current affairs had ended and I wasn't ready to do that, I felt like I still had more to offer as a journalist. Mm. So, so we knew we had good contacts. You know, Mark Jennings has always been a really, um, you know, strong supporter of our work. Um, so we kind of, well, off we went to see Mark. Mark, would you give us a show? Mark, would you back us for a show? And, you know, well, TV3, you know, worked on a smell of an oily rag, so there was never any money. But um, he was interested, you know, he wanted to support us. Um, but um, we needed to find somebody who could help us, you know, put the props together to understand how to budget and all that kind of stuff. So Phil. A doer of deals. A doer of deals. So Phil Smith and then rolls in Phil Smith and I used to work with him back at TVNZ back in the day and honestly, Phil, you know, he's an old Juno that just loves being an old Juno. He does, And the idea of having a current affairs show on his slate, slate, I think, (laughs) Yeah, he was I so imagine. excited about that. And like Phil, honestly, he's a, of course we can make that happen yesterday kind of guy. So he was he was um, perfect in that situation. And Mark was new Phil and they were, everyone seemed to be happy. And we got funded and we were like, thank God, because um, there was not a plan B. Yeah, and, and Great Southern has been an amazing refuge for us mm. post um, Fakata Māori because, you know, they really empowered us to make our own decisions. There was never any editorial input never. or control or anything like that. They've Not always been once. super supportive of our ambitions and our and, ideas. And to be honest, and, um, you know, TV3 were really hands-off with us too. Yeah. They, they just respected that we knew what we were doing. We've got a good lawyer some very minor changes every now and then but other than that it was seven years of whatever we produced at Z, we're all about moving with the times and now it's time to be part of the climate change solution and move on from fossil fuels as a company providing fuel to people all over the country we also know we have a real opportunity to lead that change we're committed to keeping Aotearoa moving by providing the right energy for everyone We believe that innovation in fuel and how it's used can make a huge difference to our planet. Find out more at z.co.nz. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. It's interesting, right, because I think for a lot of people who are more on the the audience side of current affairs, they wouldn't necessarily understand, you know, I certainly didn't, the distinction between a show which is made in-house and versus Mm. um, one that comes through an independent production company. And and that's what the hui were, you know, mm. was. And so w- when you're once that that thing's up and rolling, and you're you know 
for you, Mahi, back at, uh, you know, in the three news environment in, in some respects. What was it like working, you know, what what had changed around uh, in, in some ways in terms of how the, you know, quote-unquote mainstream you know, oh, no. environment for, for Māori current affairs? I was in the driving seat. <laughs> like, you know, I don't know if TV3 would have given me... Pre- well, they wouldn't. Otherwise, they would have contacted me and said, hey, Mihi would be great. And that's the thing about opportunity, right? Like if you don't get it, then you don't know if you're going to be good. I didn't know I was going to be able to do current affairs. It was only because Julian left and I kind of got forced into doing it. And I was absolutely terrified. And poor old David England had to come and tell me how to t- talk into a microphone and all those <laughs> kinds of things. And um, honestly, it was, you know, you just learnt with Annabelle in my ear and things like that. And so that was just sheer opportunity That's that turned out that actually we're quite a good team and we can make some good current affairs. And so um, through, you know, the, invest, uh, the investment that Great Southern made with us and our relationship with them and all the hard work, we, you know, we found out that actually we can make current affairs by ourselves outside of a platform and deliver to them. But I think that's and that's everything that we've been talking about in all these last couple of years with the reviews and stuff is the problem is the lack of opportunity for diverse groups of people um, because if you gave people an opportunity and just gave them a go, you'd probably find out that they could be quite brilliant. Um, but, yeah, so it was really different for me because I went back in, in a really powerful position that um, I, was, I was the presenter, if you like, and my mate was like the producer of a big current affairs show that wasn't big at the time, but, you know, it was pretty solid and people watched it and it got lots of um, kind of, you know, national attention at times. Um, And it was a very different relationship with TV3 where I had only 10 years prior to that, you know, punching up all the time trying to get my stories on to a programme trying to keep my one line in a story and arguing with my mate Kim Haring all the time and she'd be writing somewhere else and I'd be, nah, it needs going like that. And she's like, mm, I don't know about that, you know. That's the kind of level of where I was trying to have fights with, with well, not fights, but just trying to make um, a difference for our people. And now I was driving the microphone and the editorial and the content and all the ideas nice. with my mate Annabelle. And everyone else in the team, obviously. Mm. But can we just quickly return to to RNZ? Um, like, Mihi, how would you kind of characterise your your time there? Obviously, uh, Kiritapu Allen was recently kind of uh, made news for a. You I just got to go and get my husband so he can do like my farewell speech. <laughs> <laughs> He'd never do that. Um, I, look, you know. It's hard to talk about RNZ and not end up in the news. <laughs> uh, and I'm really wary, aware that I didn't do exit interviews or do big interviews about RNZ because I want to keep working in the industry. And I do respect a lot of people at RNZ and I enjoyed my time there. And I felt like we achieved some really cool things like um, with Shannon and I and even Carol back in the day when she was there and with the support of Paul um, and Mary and Brent, um, you know, that's where the whole real stuff kind of started. And now look at RNZ, like everyone's speaking Māori all over the show. It's like, if you can't say, you know, say a 
one minute intro in te reo, then get off. That's how RNZ is. So we're, I'm super proud of that time there. But in terms of structural change, I don't think a lot's happened. And I think that's probably, I just talked about opportunity, right? And so um, there's so many incredible people that could have an opportunity at RNZ. And I bet, you know, they would be amazing. And I bet you'd you know, over six weeks or so, you'd get used to hearing them in your ear doing checkpoint or morning report and you'd be like, oh my, oh my gosh, that person's actually incredible. I love the way that they come at this interview. It's so different, you know, to what we've heard before. But I don't think people get enough opportunity at RNZ when when you're Māori or Pacifica or... And, I'm, and people might say I'm speaking out of turn, but that's my experience. This is not kind of core to it, but it is related. The the you know, this has been a an uncommonly activist government in the media space broadly. A lot of intent, not always a lot of execution, but but they clearly care about um, the sector more so than than some other um, governments have recently. One thing that that caused a lot of concern was the the Māori media shift a few years ago, and I remember speaking to you, Annabelle, at the time about what a kind of perilous kind of inflection point that was. You know, do, do you want to talk about, you know, because I think there has been a lot of um, evolution in terms of the relation between um, Māori media and, and the media more, more broadly, why that moment kind of represented, you know, such... such uh, such kind of danger in some respects for um, the Māori media sector? Um, I think that what programmes like the Hui have showed is that um, working within the independent production sector can create really great opportunities to have strong Māori programming on mainstream platforms. And the value of that is that as ratings decline everywhere, but specifically at Māori television, it means that the, the, the money that's getting poured into, into this programming is hitting more eyeballs and therefore more bang for your buck. And also it creates balance across the mainstream media landscape to have um, significant Māori programming on these different platforms like at 3, like at TVNZ, like at RNZ. So the danger of centralising everything at Māori television means that not only are you restricting your viewership, but not everybody wants to work at Māori television, you know. Not everybody has... Not everybody has the ability to be able to drive or the desire to drive all the or way out. on to, my bike. I wouldn't get there on my bike. So, you know, I mean, at a time where everyone was talking about the importance of plurality of voice, why we would think that the exact opposite would be the solution for Māori media makes absolutely no sense. Of course, plurality of voices is much better than a single voice. And so... You know, the first iteration of the Māori media sector review that came out, we were obviously really concerned about it because while everybody else was getting to have more diversity of ideas and platforms and programming and content, we were basically getting stuck into one one little box, and and um, and so that that caused widespread concern ac across the sector. Yeah, I think that. 
the traditional television station and how they commission and stuff is also dangerous because when you're going to put everything into one building, then you literally have one or two or three people making decisions about all the funding and where it's going to land. And so, you know, we were being told that, hey, everything's going to be um, channeled back into Whakata Māori, but there was no change in structure. It wasn't like, you know, the NZ on Air where they have a board that selects all the funding or the TMP. It was going to be the same structure with uh, with way more power and funding and ability, but also just more than plurality of voices. I think that um, when you have, uh, you know, more than one, you have competition and competition mm. creates um, um, better programming. Agree, agree. So finally, you know, and, and it feels like in some ways that your whole kind of careers and particularly your, your relationship was leading to the establishment of the Aotearoa Media Collective, um, which, you know, is is now kind of very well established, got a bunch of um, shows kind of on it, you know, and that it, it is made and, and it is making. Um, tell me, uh, tell me about that. What what the, what the intent is, and you know how you would like it to be to be understood. I think for us, Aotearoa Media Collective, initially it started off as our side hustle because when the hui was off air, we needed to keep feeding our children, and we've got nine of them, so it's quite yeah, a lot. Yeah, you had to get a 40-hour contract. Yeah, a 40-week contract. 42-week contract. Three months that you had no money, yeah. So we, it started off as a side hustle, and we just wanted to make little programs that we felt really passionate about, like Mātangi Reo, which is about Māori political legacies. But then, you know, one of the good things about the leaving Māori television and the, the challenge and the difficulties that we face then is that we realise that through those big scary decisions, big growth comes. And we had been very happily ensconced at Great Southern Television where we were treated very well for seven years. Um, and we realised, as Mihi says so well, that it was time for us to get scared again. So we wanted to turn Aotearoa Media Collective into our primary income and to grow this kaupapa together and... And, and other people. Yeah, and other people yeah. as well. Because, you know, as you know, the industry is lacking in some areas, particularly production managers and all those kinds of things. And um, we wanted to be a place where people could come and make mistakes and learn and get up on their feet and give things a go like we'd been given that opportunity. Yeah, we wanted to create the opportunities for other people that we felt that we didn't get, that we had to, like, scrap and fight for and that we could we could spot these amazing young, talented people that we work with, like our production manager, Natasha Vella, mm. um, who, you know, came from a background in logistics and we were like... Trucking. Trucking. And we were like, this girl has amazing manakitanga and she... Is like she a can, logistical. She can like, park those trucks all over the country, all at once. Send product I'm everywhere. I'm pretty sure that she can come and rule, rule our roost, and she's been great. But like her, and like all of the young people that we um, trained on the Kormiro Medal, which is the Maori, it was just a six-hour online Maori journalism course. We pushed 174 people through, and um, it was incredible. And 
the feedback that we got from them. What you, you know, we're on Zoom, but you could still feel that wairua coming through their modi, through their eyes. They were just so excited about doing journalism, like having a go, having people, you know, we brought in Stacey Morrison's and Shannon's and Guy on, uh, guy on and, you know, having these people speak directly to them and, and answer their questions. So we love that kind of stuff. I mean, sometimes we don't love making it because it can be quite tiring, the training stuff, but we love what we achieve at the end of it. Um, yeah, so that's what Aotearoa Media Collective is. But also Aotearoa Media Collective is because if we didn't have it, we literally probably wouldn't be working in the industry because we don't get those jobs that some other people get, you know. Um, honestly, I think about Annabelle and she's being recognised as the best executive and whatever, but she's never been tapped on the shoulder to come and run this newsroom, come and head this up. Like those opportunities, just no one's asking me to present any big mainstream shows, you know. Those opportunities just don't come to us, so you have to create your own. Mm. And I, you know, my wish is that all of that work that we did on the, I know the merger's not going through, but there are some really easy pieces of the jigsaw we can put together, not us, because we're not in the powerful positions, you know, but the heads of RNZ, the heads of TVNZ, the funders, the government, um, the iwi networks, uh, Fakata Māori, bring them back into the fold again. We can actually make this happen. It's not. It won't cost too much money. Uh, we can do some really simple things, and it would be great to see some um, cohesion, is that word, mm. in our industry. Kia ora. Well, um, look, it's. I feel like we could also do like this could be like a five-part podcast. You've there's so much that you've done, and also your your perspectives on all this stuff are so fascinating. But Samuel has given us the hard work that we are done. But um, it's been amazing, and um, yeah, just really, really appreciate uh, your time and your mahi. Kia ora. Tēnā koura. Kia ora e te iwi. Butler here, podcast manager at the Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.